David died last week. And I thought this would be a good place to talk about what dying meant to David and to these people. It's another place where we tend to overlay our own cultural understandings of life after death or not um, onto these ancient people. And when we do, we get way off track. So let's think back through the Hebrew Bible. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. God started creation by separating the heavens and the earth, right? Was there any mention of hell in there? Uh, anywhere at all in either of the creation stories, even after the creation of humans, there, there was no mention of hell, no fiery pit, no eternal damnation. Um, but you might say that's because there was no sin at creation. Well, for one thing, God would have known we would sin, so he certainly could have created hell if he was going to need it. But let's give you that point for the moment. There was no sin at creation, but it sure didn't take long for sin to enter the world. In fact, Adam and Eve's son Cain was the first murderer. Surely God invented hell then, right? Well, no, no, he didn't. In fact, if you go back and read Genesis 4, you'll see what God's own punishment was for murder. It was to make Cain's crops no longer grow. He would have to become a wanderer throughout the earth, dependent on other people's mercy to feed him. That was God setting things right. That was God judging Cain. And Cain said to God, well, this punishment is more than I can bear. Anyone who finds me will kill me because you won't be there to protect me. And there you go. That sounds like a version of hell, right? There's no fire, but still being chased, starving, persecuted in fear of your life. That's pretty much hell. But no, the, even that was not God's intent. It was not God's intent that Cain should die. God did not judge him so harshly. You know what God did to the very first murderer, the person who arguably brought murder into the world? God said, don't worry, Cain, here, let me put my own mark on you so that anyone who finds you will know that you belong to me and you are under my protection. And there you have it. God's judgment on a murderer, mercy, compassion, protection. And if you look forward through the whole entire Hebrew Bible, you are not going to find hell. It is not in there. A fiery hell as a concept doesn't enter the culture until the Persians conquer the world. And in David's time, we're still 500 years away from that. A fiery hell was a Persian concept, as is the idea of paradise. Paradise itself is a Persian word. We don't run into that word in the Bible until the New Testament. So what did the Israelites believe? Well, they believed that the dead go to a place they called Sheol. The root of that word merely means quiet. It was nothing more than the place of the dead. And it is non-judgmental. It is neutral, like a coffin is neutral. Sheol is frequently referred by David, referred to by David in the Psalms. When you died, your soul went to Sheol, and there you couldn't do anything. You were simply dead. You didn't even praise God. In fact, David uses that very argument in Psalm 6 when he begs the Lord to save him from death. He says, God, 
Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? But even in Sheol, they believed that God is present. Psalm 139.8 says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. Heaven, as they conceived it, is simply where God lives. Sheol, as they conceived it, is where humans went upon death. Even so, there was definitely a sense that it made a difference how you lived your life, but only because this determined your blessings or curses in this early life. Living badly hastened your death and living righteously led to long life. Um, and you can kind of see this was why they thought if, if bad things happen to you, you must have done bad things. This is just part of that whole worldview. Even in the Ten Commandments, the command to honor your parents was so you would live long upon, upon the earth. That is in the Ten Commandments. A long life was the ultimate reward. The pervasive belief at this time was that when you died, you died. That's one of the reasons it was such a big deal to have descendants. That's how you lived on after death. Now, obviously, none of this was a fully developed philosophy. It was more of a patchwork of understanding cobbled together bits and pieces from various surrounding cultures. When we get to the New Testament, we'll see that people's ideas about the afterlife have absorbed even more words and concepts, this time from the Persians and the Greeks, including their ideas about a fiery hell and a paradise. But none of this exists in the time of David. David believes his body goes to Sheol. We do find a couple of references in the Hebrew Bible to uh, a belief that the body, the body goes to Sheol while the soul returns to God, but these references are few and far between. There is just nothing about heaven or hell in the Mosaic law. The law was all about how to live here and now. So back to the story. Solomon is the new king. Adonijah, whom Solomon beat out for the throne last week, is not happy. He goes to Bathsheba. Wary, she says, do you come in peace? Yes, he says, I was king. You yourself know that Israel chose me, but the Lord chose Solomon. So I've come with one small request. Promise me to grant it. And Bathsheba says, speak. And Adonijah says, all I want is Abishag the virgin to take as my wife. Now, remember that Abishag was the young concubine who cared for King David and kept him warm in his old age. Well, when Bathsheba reports Adonijah's request to Solomon, he hits the roof. You know what it means for a man to take a king's concubine as his own. It means he's staking his claim to the kingship, right? And Solomon won't stand for this. He sends Benaiah the general to kill Adonijah. This story is a classic example of why it's so important to read the Bible within the context of these people. If you didn't know the significance of taking a former king's concubine, you would have no idea why Solomon ordered Adonijah's death. You would find this story incomprehensible. Solomon still has more loose ends from Adonijah's rebellion. He calls in Abiathar the priest. Now, Abiathar had supported Adonijah. So Solomon says, go to your home, for you too are a doomed man. I will not put you to death, for you carried the ark of God for my father David. But today 
I strip you of your priesthood and banish you. And so the words of the Lord are fulfilled for Abiathar is the last of Eli's descendants. And remember, the Lord had told Eli that because of his sin and the sin of his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, way back at the time of Samuel, the priesthood, which is an inherited title, would pass away from Eli's house. It has taken four generations to accomplish, but what seemed impossible is now done. When Joab hears what's happening, he also runs to the big altar of sacrifice and grabs the horns because he too supported Adonijah. But Solomon's having none of it. He commands Benaiah to go stab Joab. Benaiah's a little afraid to do this. He calls Joab to come out of the tent of the Lord, but Joab refuses and says, no, I will die here. Well, Benaiah reports this back to Solomon who says, so be it, do as he says. His blood guilt is on his own head for he murdered both Abner and Amasa, two men more righteous than him. So wait a minute. Solomon orders Joab killed, even though he's claimed sanctuary by holding on to the horns of the altar. Can he do that? Yep, he sure can. Joab forgot to read the fine print. According to Exodus 21, 14, the Lord said, if anyone schemes to kill someone deliberately, take him from my altar and put him to death. Well, Joab is certainly guilty of that several times over. It's interesting to contrast the Mosaic law around murder to God's treatment of Cain. I wonder if the Mosaic law is more about protecting other people than it is about punishing the wrongdoer. God didn't kill David, who was also a murderer, and I suspect it was because David truly repented and was not a threat to anyone else. The evidence points to God's heart being 100% compassion and mercy. I also don't think God sees death as any greater punishment than simply foregoing the blessings of this life and as a protection of the other people you might harm. And so Benaiah kills Joab in the tent of the Lord, and Solomon makes Benaiah commander of his armies. There's one last loose end. Remember old Shimei, who um, David had asked Solomon to punish? Solomon calls Shimei to him. David had promised Shimei not to kill him. So Solomon tells Shimei he will be safe as long as he remains in Jerusalem. But should he set so much as a toe outside the city, his life will be forfeit. Shimei, of course, agrees to these terms. Three years later, one of Shimei's slaves runs away to Gath and Shimei chases him. When Solomon hears that Shimei left Jerusalem, he calls Shimei to him and reminds him of their deal. Then he says, you yourself know in your heart all the evil you did to my father David, and now your evil has been brought back and heaped on your own head. My house is innocent of your blood. And the king charges Benaiah to kill Shimei. And after that, Solomon's kingdom is at peace, unshaken from within or without. David died last week, but he left quite a legacy. We need to go back and pick up a little thread from earlier in the story. Remember when David had that really bad idea of counting how many fighting men he had in Israel? It was spitting in the face of the Lord, who is 
the only actual protection Israel has. And when the Lord withdrew his protection, a terrible plague raced through Israel. And David prayed for mercy, and the plague quite literally stopped at the threshing floor of a man named Arauna, who lived on Mount Moriah, just a little bit north of Jerusalem. Well, late in life, David decides that this site is where he will build the temple of the Lord. Here is where the Lord would be worshipped in Israel. Now, Mount Moriah has a history. It is the name of the mountain where Abraham went to sacrifice his son Isaac. It is the place, according to scripture, where the Lord who sees provides what is needed. It is the place where the Lord showed himself to be different from all the other gods who demanded child sacrifice. So after the temple is built and the ark, we have, you know, we haven't, we'll get to that in this lesson, but after it's built and the ark gets transferred from the tent in Jerusalem here to Mount Moriah, Mount Moriah will come to be known as Mount Zion. But for now, it's still known as Mount Moriah and Zion is where the ark resides in the tent David made for it in Jerusalem. Zion, you see, is less the name of a particular mountain and more the name of the place where God dwells on earth, wherever that is. So David started gathering supplies to build the temple. He conscripted labor. He began to draw up very detailed plans down to the nails, the designs, the curtains, the furnishings. I mean, he, he drew the whole thing out in detail. First Chronicles 22 tells us David figured that Solomon was too young and inexperienced and the design and preparation of the materials for the temple would be well beyond his capabilities. So David figured he'd do absolutely all the preparation possible without actually lifting a finger to begin construction because the Lord had told him he couldn't, couldn't construct the temple. So now David has passed away. And the time has come for Solomon to begin building the temple. His kingdom is secure. The materials and the workforce are ready. It's time. But still, Solomon hesitates. This is a huge task. And he is young. And he feels unprepared. So he and the leaders of Israel travel to Gibeon, where the tabernacle is. Now, the ark is not here, but the tabernacle is in Gibeon and the large bronze altar sits there. So this is where you do your big um, burnt offerings. And, and so Solomon offers like a thousand burnt offerings to the Lord. And that night, the Lord appears to Solomon in a dream and says, ask for whatever you want me to give you. And Solomon answers, please confirm your promise to my father, David, Please confirm that I am the one you want to be king over these people. Please, Lord, give me wisdom and knowledge and discernment that I may lead them well. And God says to Solomon, since this is truly your heart's desire, I will grant it to you. But because you did not ask for wealth or honor or even for protection from your enemies, but only had a heart for my people, I will also grant you wealth and honor, such as no king has ever had and none after you will ever have. Now, I have to tell you, this story made a huge impression on me when I was young. It resonated so strongly with me. It speaks to true value, value that will not perish. 
I had been taught since early childhood that wisdom and discernment were far more valuable than any wealth or honor. But it wasn't until I was a young teenager that it dawned on me that Solomon had asked for these gifts. And I can remember to this very day, lying on my bunk bed at the age of 14 and asking the Lord to give me the gift of wisdom. I had no idea how that worked exactly, but I knew that if it was more valuable than wealth and honor, and if it was mine for the asking, then I was for sure going to ask for it. And God honored that childish prayer. Wisdom and discernment are yours for the asking. They are seeds planted in prayer, and they grow so slowly as to be imperceptible. But they do grow. Asking for them certainly does not guarantee wealth and honor, far from it. But they are gifts that will give you an unerring sense of direction, even when all others lose their way. As an example of this, the writer of Kings tells the famous story of two prostitutes who live together and both have babies within days of each other. One of the women rolls over on her baby during the night and it smothers to death. She switches the babies and puts the dead baby next to the other woman. Now, and now the two women have come before Solomon to resolve the dispute, the dispute as to who is the true mother of the living baby. It seems like an impossible dilemma just one person's word against another. But Solomon orders his soldiers to cut the baby in two and give half to each woman. One woman says, good, then neither of us will have him. But the other woman falls before the king and pleads, no, my Lord, please just give her the living baby. Do not kill him. And so Solomon knows that this woman is the baby's true mother. Solomon's fame spreads far and wide. He makes an alliance with the Pharaoh of Egypt and marries his daughter and brings her to Jerusalem. He speaks 3,000 proverbs and writes 1,005 songs. His knowledge is unparalleled. The Bible has a whole book of proverbs which are attributed to him. Like the book of Psalms, we won't read the book together, but I've added some of the important ones to the study guide as bonus material. The first nine chapters are about wisdom, who is personified as a woman. The material is presented as if Solomon is giving advice to his son. The last 20 chapters are various collections of Proverbs, only some of which are Solomon's. The book of Proverbs ends with a beautiful acrostic poem. In the NIV translation, it begins with the words, a wife of no noble character who can find. But if you look in other translations, you'll find this phrase noble character translated as excellent or capable or virtuous. Ha, that's a red flag that we've got some spin happening here. When you see that kind of range of translations between different Bibles, pull out your backpack tools and check the original language. The word is the word kayil which means strength and valor, and is translated as such whenever a passage is talking about a man. This is the word used elsewhere for mighty warriors, leaders of Israel, Boaz, and David. This is a classic example of women being watered down in translation. The woman being valued here is valued for her strength and valor.
First Kings 6 tells us that Solomon begins building the temple in April or May of the fourth year of his reign. And we know from Assyrian records and events referred to elsewhere in this period that the fourth year of Solomon's reign was 966 BCE. The Bible tells us this was 480 years after the Israelites had come out of Egypt. That would place the Exodus at 446 BCE, which is about where we placed it in our own studies. But remember that those older dates don't line up exactly with the historical records. The ancient writers are notorious for blending events together in their stories, so don't get all hung up on counting backwards. What's important here is that we're finally to a part of the Bible where the biblical dates are corroborated by other historical records. It's pretty much of a certainty that temple construction began in 966 BCE and ended in 959 BCE. The Lord is with Solomon as the temple is being built. He promises Solomon, if you will follow my decrees and keep my commands, I will fulfill the promise I made to your father, David. I will live among the Israelites. I will not abandon my people, Israel. The temple is in the same proportions as the tabernacle, but it is double in size and Solomon adds storage rooms and rooms for the priestly functions along the side. He adds a porch and he makes it three stories tall. So it's very impressive, a true wonder and a landmark. Even the furnishings are upgraded and expanded. Something, isn't it? The furnishings inside are gold and virtually everything is covered in gold. Pretty amazing. What he does not make new is the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. Construction of the temple is finally completed in 959 BCE, and the priests begin moving all the furnishings in and preparing for the temple to become operational. About 11 months later, in early autumn, Solomon calls together all the elders of Israel to come dedicate the temple. Around It's around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Uh, you could also call it the Feast of Tents. It's the same word. Seems to be a very appropriate time to dedicate the Lord's new home, right? You'll remember that festival. That's the big nationwide campout. The priests go into the tent in Jerusalem and gather up the Ark of the Covenant, carrying it on their shoulders by its carrying poles. And they carry it carefully all the way to Mount Moriah to the new temple. In the courtyard of the temple, King Solomon and all the people make so many sacrifices, they cannot be counted. Then the priests place the ark carefully in the Holy of Holies inside the temple. The ark itself has its cover with the two cherubim spreading their wings over it. But in the Holy of Holies in the temple, Solomon has also built two huge freestanding cherubim overlaid with gold that stand 15 feet tall and have wingspans of 15 feet each. It is under these that the ark is placed. If you recall, the ark is supposed to have this three things in it, the stone tablets of the law, Aaron's staff that had budded, 
and a jar of manna. But apparently some of the contents have been lost. Maybe when the ark fell into the hands of the Philistines, when it is placed in the temple, all that's in it are the two stone tablets Moses had placed there long ago. King Solomon kneels on a platform in the courtyard of the temple that he's erected for this special day. And now the critical moment arrives. Will the temple be acceptable to the Lord? Will the Lord in fact dwell here or has something gone horribly wrong? King Solomon spreads his hands towards heaven and says, O oh Lord, there is no God like you in heaven or earth. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who walk wholeheartedly in your way, let all your promises to my father David come true. But will you really dwell on earth with men? The heavens themselves could not possibly contain you. So how much less is this temple that I have built? May you hear my prayer today and may your eyes be open towards this temple day and night this place where you said you would put your name. Hear my prayer, and when you hear, forgive. Forgive us whenever we wrong each other. Repay the guilty by bringing down on their own heads what they have done to someone else, and reveal the one who is innocent. When we as a nation turn away from you and you allow our enemies to defeat us or allow hardship, famine, drought, or plague to overcome us, when we turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make sacrifices in this temple, hear us and forgive our sin. Reestablish us here in the home you have made for us. When a foreigner comes into our midst because he has heard of your greatness and your provision for your people, and when he prays towards this temple, hear his prayer too. Grant his petition so that all the people of earth may know your name and know that you are God and that this temple bears your name. And now, my God, may your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. Arise, O Lord God, and come to your resting place. May your priests be clothed with salvation and your saints rejoice in your goodness. Do not reject me, the one you have anointed, but remember the great love you promised your servant David. And in the silence that follows, a fire comes blazing down from heaven and consumes the burnt offerings and sacrifices on the great altar. And the glory of the Lord fills the temple. The cloud is so thick that the priests can't even enter to do their duties. And all the people see the fire and see the glory of the Lord above the temple. And they kneel as one with their faces to the ground. And they worship the Lord and give thanks, saying, he is good his love endures forever. And so the temple is dedicated. The dedication lasts for seven days. Then they celebrate Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And after that, the Feast of Tabernacle lasts seven days. And when all is finished, King Solomon sends the people back to their homes. Solomon spends seven years building the temple. 
and another 13 years building his own palace. And at the end of this time, the Lord comes to him again in a dream and says, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. My eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be here. As for you, if you walk before me as David your father did and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne as I promised. But if you turn away and forsake me and go off and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land and will reject this temple. I will make it an object of ridicule throughout the world. And although it looks imposing now, it will be destroyed. And all who pass by will be appalled and say, what did these people do that the Lord would do such a thing to this temple and this land? And the people will answer, they forgot the Lord, the God of their fathers who brought them out of Egypt. They embraced other gods and worshiped and served them. That is why all this disaster has befallen them. So Solomon is very careful to do all the Lord said. The temple becomes the center of national worship. Solomon's fame continues to spread far and wide until even the queen of Sheba hears of him. We don't exactly know where her kingdom was, but probably somewhere in the southwestern part of the Arabian Peninsula. She decides to see this king for herself and she prepares a test for him, a test of hard questions. She arrives in Jerusalem with a very great caravan laden with spices, gold, and precious stones. We don't know what questions she asks him, but Solomon is able to answer all of her hard questions. I wonder if they're the questions we all ask, like why do bad things happen to good people? Why do babies die? Why do evil men prosper? When she sees the wisdom of Solomon, sees his palace and his food and how he has organized his officials, when she sees his riches and the temple of the Lord, she's utterly overwhelmed and exclaims, everything I heard about you is true. I did not believe it until I saw with my own eyes, but you have far exceeded even the reports I heard. Praise be to the Lord your God for his love of Israel and his desire to uphold them forever. And she gives Solomon the vast gifts she has brought with her. Then King Solomon gives the Queen of Sheba even more than she brought to give him. And she leaves and returns with her retinue to her own country. We'll take the opportunity in our breakout groups to explore this whole idea of wisdom will use the framework of Proverbs 8 to do it. It's a wonderful proverb that is written in wisdom's own voice. We'll think about what she says about herself, and we'll wonder how she fits into the greater scheme of things 
and why we don't hear more about her in church. I'm going to read you Proverbs 8 um, before I send you off to look at your questions. So as I read it, kind of um, take a, a pencil and maybe mark on your study guide the things that pop out to you um, about who wisdom is uh, and, and what her function is. Wisdom cries aloud to you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on it. Listen, for I have trustworthy things to say. I open my lips to speak what is right. My mouth speaks what is true, for my lips detest wickedness. All the words of my mouth are just. None of them is crooked or perverse. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have insight, I have power. I love those who love me and those who seek me find me. My fruit is better than fine gold. What I yield surpasses choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, along the paths of justice, bestowing a rich inheritance on those who love me and making their treasuries full. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works, before his deeds of old. I was formed long ages ago, at the very beginning when the world came to be, when there were not even any watery depths, I was given birth, when there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth, before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For those who find me, find life and receive favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me, harm themselves. All who hate me, love death. So with those excerpts from the NIV version of Proverbs 8, I send you into your breakout groups. And um, 
uh, just go ahead and start. You can start right on the um, uh, questions on page 35. And I'll see you in about 15 minutes. Yay, there's everybody. So, so we got this whole thing whipped in 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I want to hear right. about it. Tell, tell me all about Wizards. Actually, all we did was scratch its surface. Yeah, what we, what we concluded was that you need to do an entire series. Yes. <laughs> Woody, I know you have to leave here in the next minute. What do you have to say here? Uh, well, I, I will let um, I'll let uh, Marlene and Joe speak for me. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote down what he said. That speaks <laughs> a wise man. <laughs> I wrote down what Marlene said. I wrote down what Woody said. Bye, y'all. Bye. 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 <laughs> so start us off, Marlene. <laughs> um. Well. You know, we, we had this, this interesting discussion of trying to sort of look at Proverbs 8 description and, and what's, what jumped out to me, which was something I had not considered before, but that then we had a discussion of was this really, you know, what I was reading, um, is this description in Proverbs 8 seems to describe wisdom as a created entity that existed before the creation of the universe. Mm -hmm. But then there was this discussion about is wisdom actually an entity or is wisdom more um, a characteristic of God, such as love um, and, and just being described in this way, in this poetic expression within Proverbs. Um, but then you read these things like, you know, I was the first of God's works. And I was there, I was given birth before you made the world. And the fact that wisdom is referred to in female language is very interesting. Um, so when we looked at your question about um, how does she fit with our concepts of the Trinity, Satan, angels, and demons, seems that wisdom isn't included in that panoply of created beings that we ever hear about in church. Mm -hmm. Isn't that weird? I mean, she's yeah. talked about as a person all the way through. And this is not, she's not just in Proverbs 8. Yeah. But I've never heard a sermon or a Bible lesson mm -hmm. that spoke about wisdom A as a creation and B as female. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know the word Sophia is a female name. But, um, yeah, is that part of female erasure? Is it? I suspect so. <laughs> possibly, I think so. I also think that possibly, I mean, my own take on the, the Holy Spirit is female. Yeah. Because it's the caregiver, the person that, you know, oh. so, but I know when people, when I've heard, sermons about the holy spirit it's always a man yes but does it but isn't in in the original languages isn't the holy spirit referred to in female terms i think so you can't you can't go by the um whether the word itself is is uh feminine masculine or feminine. masculine because that is not an assignment of gender that's not true in the way we so i'm wondering i i thought 
when I read this about the birth and, and she, uh, I thought to myself, well, it's, it could be the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Very interesting. Ross, I hear you. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, anybody who's taken Latin like me, you know, you, you, you're driven mad by the assignment of gender to inanimate or, you know, you know, non-people things. Mm-hmm. And Gail, you and I've had the discussion where the Holy Spirit is, a, appears to be assigned the gender of male. The body of Christ is assigned the gender of female. Um, I guess it looks like wisdom is assigned the gender of female. Um, I wouldn't get too caught up necessarily on the genders. I mean, again, in Latin, you can have maybe a, 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 church, a, a chair is female. Right. Or this or that is male. Mm-hmm. Right. Swords in Hebrew are feminine. I mean, it, you just the whole thing is 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 problematic. That's not how you would do it. These are um, personifications of ideas, you know, so God yes. themselves <laughs> is personified in all kinds of ways in scripture. Um, uh you know, Jesus called, said he himself was like a, a mother hen, you know, wanting to gather chicks under her wings. It's, it's like these, these are, are just metaphors for truth. So I don't want to get hung up on that. I do I want to get into what the truth is, because I don't think wisdom is taught. And from all I can see, wisdom is foundational. Yeah, mm-hmm. and let me mention something. What I said in our, you know, during the days of creation, you know, they, you know, they a lot of things were created, hap- was happening. God didn't say, "Well, I, I think it's good. It might be good. Oh well, we'll we'll, we'll settle that later." No, He said it's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you know? <laughs> yeah, God. Yes, I I also feel that's what I'm saying. I we discussed the, the female being and I was like, I, I don't, at the end of the day, I mean, these are the inspired words of God's and we're definitely supposed to infer from them, but it's written by man and transcribed. And I don't want to get into, I don't think that wisdom is a separate female being. I think right. you can, I don't know. I, I think that that's missing the boat is my Yes. I think it just shows that God isn't gendered. Right. The way when, when you read the Bible, God is all genders. It doesn't matter where it goes and being part of the LBGT community. um, It shows to me that people that exclude all genders and just say there's male and female period are excluding a big part of God. Mm-hmm. 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 That's, that's something we talked about in our group mm-hmm. um, because I think it was Erica and Ellen brought out in the um, in the second from the bottom paragraph. It says, "I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in His presence, rejoicing in His and delighting in mankind, delighting in mankind, rejoicing in the world. Mm -hmm. If we 
don't look at all these other things and seek wisdom, we're going to be missing the boat on a lot of that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot to be happy about. There's a lot to rejoice in, but we need to seek wisdom, knowledge, understanding, and embrace these things. All this stuff I underlined to be able to be more fully aware of where we miss the boat so we can work on that because um, I likened it to like a teenager who knows everything and (laughs) they find out later they lacked some wisdom somewhere and maybe some knowledge and the more they learn the more they're aware that they're missing out on something and the more you learn as a person the more you realize you know, I'm in my 50s. I'm learning a whole new lens at looking at the Bible, mm-hmm. a whole new skill set. And, and you know, and I, I think, Julia, I agree with you that with, with learning can come wisdom, but that's not necessarily always the case. Right. Um, I, was, I was saying in our small group, my husband and I were having this conversation the other day because, you know, you keep seeing these articles that come up every now and then of the 50 wisest humans in our lifetime <laughs> or whatever. And they list often not people known for their wisdom, but people known for their intelligence or their education, like Einstein. Einstein was not a wise man. Uh-uh. Einstein was a genius and, and, you know, a remarkable mind. But wisdom can come from people with no little or no education. Now, there are other sources of knowledge, you know, from living life and observing the world and observing people and things like that. But I think, especially in our modern mindset, we tend to equate intelligence and wisdom mm-hmm. as the same thing. Yeah. Money. Yeah, we, we talked we talked quite a bit about that. I will disagree with you that Einstein wasn't wise because he was a genius, but I think he was a pretty wise guy too when I read his stuff. But, you know, one of the wisest people I've ever met had very little schooling. And so I think that wisdom comes from, you know, I mean, I, I'm a trunk full of useless trivia, right? That doesn't make me wise. It, it comes from... Um, well, I mean, I think it's it's pretty descript right here. I mean, it, it says, with humility comes wisdom, and her instruction is to fear the Lord. Humility comes before honor. I think mm-hmm. that we have some pretty clear instruction about wisdom, that we're to seek God, that we're to seek, you know, um, time with him in prayer. And mm-hmm. I think that when we look at the lessons that the Lord has showed us about mercy and compassion with other people, um, which... You know, I thought about that when I read the fear of the Lord, because we talk a lot about his mercy and compassion, even today with Cain, right? Mm-hmm. And yet there's fear of the Lord. So those are kind of two juxtapositioned ideas. But I think this is why wisdom is not addressed in church. It's not a neat package. Mm-hmm. And as Woody said, it's very amorphous. I, so... I was... I was spurred on to think of back to like Sunday school days of memorizing verses. And the verse that came to my mind was actually, I, I Googled it and it was in the next chapter. So it said, it's Proverbs nine ten, 
And it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy one is understanding. But then that kind of throws us back to, well, what is the fear of the Lord? Right. And your, your verse, um, Pastor Gail, that you gave us, right. And it's like the fourth paragraph on what you had given us. It says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. You know, I hate pride. I hate arrogance, you know, right. evil behavior, perverse speech. So it, it was, it's kicking me back to the last part, how you said Solomon prayed, you know, in his ask for the Lord, it was help me to have the heart of my father, David. Yes. And when we think of David versus Saul and David's continued acknowledgement of the Lord and humility before the Lord and, you know, repentance when he did recognize evil, um, you know, to me, I, you know, the, what is wisdom's role? It does seem like it's very much of a very clear love, hating evil, advocating for those that, you know, are unable to do so for themselves, delighting in others. Um, so that, that to me was, uh, and, and back to, it does seem like those are, that is the personification of the father, the son, and the Holy spirit, all of mm-hmm. his roles. Mm-hmm. So I love it. So Gail, is there a better word to be translated than fear? Cause most people think of fear as being scared of something. Exactly. And um, it's it's a, a phrase that you find over and over in, in the Bible. And it actually, the words are fear of the Lord. But what it means, I think the best way to understand the concept is what they're trying con- to convey to you is recognizing that God is God. That's what they're trying to say. So if you substitute those words every time you see fear of the Lord, if you substitute, recognize that Yahweh is God, blah, 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 blah. That will help you understand what they're trying to convey here. And that's why it's so linked with humility. That's also why it's linked with delight and blessing. So, Gail, why do you think that we don't hear about this in sermons? And well, let me put it to you like this. All of us, I think, would nod our heads up and down if I asked you, can you tell when you've run into somebody who is wise versus somebody who is not? Are you able to recognize wisdom as a thing in somebody? Right? Mm-hmm. You have a list in your head of wise people. On the other hand, that you've met in your life, the reason there's a list of them is because you can count them on one hand. There's not a lot. It's a, it, people, this is the narrow road. Recognizing that Yahweh is God is the narrow road, you know? Recognizing that God is God requires humility. You cannot honestly do that without the corollary of, therefore, I am not God. And have no right to that. Um, And there are just not a lot of people walking the face of the earth who are willing to say that about themselves, honestly, to be 
and everything that that means. That's, that's what I was thinking as you said it, Gail, the people I know that were wise were so humble and unassuming and caring and giving and all those attributes. And when, when I think about those people that I consider wise, they are humble. They aren't arrogant. I think too, there's a piece that I, I'm realizing for that question of, of why is rarely mentioned. I, I think that you had mentioned this before Pastor Gail, where there's an idol of certainty sometimes that kind of creeps up in our faith and to really be able to allow wisdom to take over, there has to be a posture of us knowing that there will always be to some degree, some uncertainty with God and that we can't necessarily put him in this box or Mm -hmm. we can't identify or describe it. And not everybody is comfortable with that because that's where sometimes fear creeps in. And so it's easier to kind of push that aside and say, nope, it actually is this and this and that, because then that gives people this false sense of peace. That to-do list. Yeah. And, And I think really allowing wisdom to take over there. Yes. Those attributes that we've all listed, but there is a big piece of to recognize that God is God then allows me to, to have a posture of, I will never under truly understand and truly um, get his ways. Like there's always going to be this separation and not everybody's willing to land there because Mm -hmm. landing there for some people is, well, you don't love him enough. You don't trust him enough. You don't believe in him enough. And so there's this just, I think, wave of confusion that comes when we really accept wisdom because it doesn't sit well with our culture. In my opinion, that's right. It actually doesn't sit well in the Christian um, church culture uh, because so often the the pastors who are still largely men, you know, um, and I'm not blaming this on men. I'm really not. This is not a just a man thing. This is a woman thing too. Um, the the people in authority. This is a thing about people in authority. People who are up there in front of the group are under so much pressure to perform, Mm -hmm. to deliver, to lead, to have the answers, to speak the truth, to be inspiring. And eventually, and that's a slippery slope. Eventually Mm -hmm. that becomes never show weakness, never be vulnerable. Don't be yourself. That is a slippery slope. If, If that person cannot steep themselves in humility and continually reject the congregation trying to make force them into that place of the idol right Mm -hmm. force them on the pedestal as a pastor you have to every day actively resist that that's part of why pastors need to be in therapy they need somebody challenging them there need to be co-pastors so somebody else of equal responsibility and status in the congregation can challenge you it's so important and um i was going somewhere with that and i forgot where i was going (laughs) i think i think it speaks to the 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 fact that a lot of people in the congregation 
are very uncomfortable with a pastor who says, I don't know. Oh, I remember what I was going to do. I was going to tell you a story. This week, I was told a story by a friend who said, whose um, significant other was, this is somebody who works at a church, you know, um, as a, as a pastor whose significant other was taken off the prayer list because it looked bad for the pastor's significant other to need prayer. Wow. Wow. So, and that goes back to um, when when she was just saying that it looks judgmental for you to say, oh, it's because you don't pray enough. It's because you don't believe enough. And, And yet the ironic thing about that is that that's, that's so hypocritical because that's exactly the opposite of what we're supposed to be doing in church as fishermen and for Christ, as the whole nine yards is to turn around and pass judgment. Oh, it's because you don't believe enough or, Oh, it looks bad to put the pastor's wife on there. Mm -hmm. Because the truth is for him to turn around and take care of his wife when she's ill means he probably has to neglect his flock a little bit more than he's been than he wants to in order to take care of his wife. And we don't recognize that. It's, it's also uh, comes down to the, the, the whole ability for people to look at somebody that's different than them, like an immigrant or somebody that doesn't speak the same language or look like them. And they're like, they get judgmental because they're like, well, this person is less than, and that's totally against everything that was taught in the Bible. And I don't, that just baffles me. Another reason I think wisdom is not taught is because you cannot reduce wisdom to a checklist to achieve it. I mentioned that, that I think it's because it's not a concrete item. I mean, we can, we can all pretty much agree on love, hate, but wisdom what are its boundaries, right? Well, as I say, it's difficult for flawed people to talk about wisdom. It is. That's very good. But (laughs) that's where wisdom starts is by recognizing that we're flawed. Yes. Yeah, Mm -hmm. but the problem is, as you just pointed out, some of those people don't realize they're flawed, but they are. We all are. Well, and Ron's made a good point. It's in a spectrum. You know, so uh, wisdom for where I am in today and in my experiences and how I'm viewing God is going to be very different than how I view God in my experiences 10 years from now, where I may understand wisdom in a whole whole complete different level. (laughs) It's always changing. One of the things that I want to come out of this lesson, and we're way, way, way over time, so we're going to wrap up here, but... um, Uh, One of the things I want to come out of this lesson is that we realize how integral wisdom is supposed to be to our experience of relationship with the Lord. Wisdom Mm -hmm. was there when the world was formed, just as the Lord, we will find out later, the Lord spoke creation into being through Christ. It, It just Wisdom is that integral. We swim in a soup of wisdom. 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and it's there. That is nourishment for us. It is there for the taking, there for the asking. It is something to pursue. It is something to ask the Lord about in your own personal walk. So, uh, may, I, may I read something? Sure. Romans 1 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible quality and quality, I'm sorry, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have clear have been clearly seen, being understood from his workmanship, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and darkened in their foolish hearts. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images of mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Where did you find that from? I've heard, I've heard it before. Romans 1, uh, starting with 20. That entire passage of Romans 1 um, talks about it. The whole beginning of that is, is the setup is Paul talking to people about idols that they have and how that leads them to every kind of self-destruction that is known, <laughs> you know, right. we, when we set ourselves up as idols, we are far from wisdom. Sure. And we, you know, we talk a lot about some people in here and my heart is all about kids and I know a whole passel of 20-somethings that have turned from church that were raised in church. Mm-hmm. And their biggest complaint, they just call it all hypocrite. And when I look at, like, you know, like we were talking about, that we turn around and we judge things. Well, it's because you don't pray enough or because, because they have questions. And mm-hmm. instead of honoring the question, we tend to rebuke it or act like, they, you know, like they didn't pray enough that, you know, like she was saying earlier, but also they see their parents participating in all the child stories that we read about, you know, the, the, the gold and the, this, and then they become these young adults and they question everything. And Mm -hmm. they're even questioning, you know, this need for the big house, the need for this, the need for that. And they're just, there is no, answer for them a lot of times from the church and i just think that this very much correlates to exactly what you're talking about yeah Mm -hmm. that very thing joe happened to my nephew when he was in high school he started having a lot of questions and my sister at that time didn't feel adequate to answer them so she suggested he go to his youth pastor and so he made time and he went to sit down with his youth pastor and said, these are things I'm questioning. And the youth pastor's response was, well, if you're having those kinds of questions and doubts, then perhaps you never really accepted Christ in the first place. Oh, mercy. And my nephew walked away from the church and now considers himself an atheist. And, and even if those words aren't specifically used, it's what kids are walking away feeling. Mm-hmm. Well, that's definitely our least wise response to these kids. Yeah. I mean, it, it goes back to that whole idea of certainty that, 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 that is like the opposite of wisdom in many ways, because 
there is so much that we cannot be certain about. But if you're everything's not locked down tight and boxed beautifully and packaged with a bow, then it's not real. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the when when people ask me that kind of question, like those kids ask, uh, usually it's the mom. It's the mom is asking me. The mom is saying, "Oh my gosh, my kids." not going to be Christian anymore, you know, (laughs) and, and, and I point out to her that the very things they are questioning are bad things and they should not, they are not attributes of God. They should not be attributes of God's community and they are right to question them. And I hope they do run away from those. It's when you begin questioning things that are not resonating in your spirit as being true or truthful, then you begin moving in a direction that God can work with. Then you begin moving towards the God who wants to be found by you. And it doesn't matter what those kids call that. I don't care if they never know that what they're seeking is named God. (laughs) As long as they keep is named God. I don't care if they never know that what they're seeking is named God as long as they keep seeking it. Because God will be found. I think it is interesting back to Marlene of you know who you take those questions to. Because like, you know, I'm four, I'm almost 42. And I brought a couple of those questions up to my parents a, a couple months back. <laughs> my mom immediately lost it. We're literally outside a cell phone store. And she goes, you're questioning everything we've ever taught you. And I, <laughs> but it, I, it was a good reminder. I mean, and it shut down the conversation, right? No more mm-hmm. questions for me. You know, the people that I normally go to to process some of this with, immediately it was an unsafe situation. So, but the blood, it was a good reminder to me. And I'm just thinking back to Marlene. It's such a bummer that you would think that going to the youth pastor or my dad's a pastor, right? My mom is a pastor's wife. You would think that that's the appropriate place to bring some of these things. But there really does have to be back to your saying, like, you know, we can list on our hand who are those wise people. I think for me more than ever, even as an adult, it's really important for me to seek and cherish those wise people and be really, you know, Eric always reminds me, don't throw your pearl, like there's the verse about don't throw your pearls to swine, not trying to call my parents swine, but you know, there, <laughs> there, there is an appropriate time, place, and person to bring some of those questions. And it's, it's a challenge, I think, for youth to understand who those people are, or you assume mm-hmm. certain, you know, you would assume the youth pastor would be one of those people. And what a travesty that that was not the case, but I'm you know, encouraged for all of us to recognize that and to continue to have our eyes open for those moments where we can be that safe space, even without me knowing the answers to some of them. I think I, I now long to be one of those safe places where someone can process some of those things without me having to know the answers, but being able to journey with them as they, you know, like we sought out Pastor Gail, you know, it was, mm-hmm. it's one of those things where we all need that so badly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, that it's, I, it's right. been interesting this whole, I am so glad to be here because I went from believing every word I ever heard in church to believing none of it to now coming back and saying, okay, this is what's true. And this is what was, you know, I should have disregarded. And I'm 57 years old. I'm, you know, I've had a lot of church behind me in years behind me. And it finally came down to the point where God finally 
I feel like God finally smacked me up against the head and said, I'm God. They're not. What the church is saying is not me on everything. I know. Talk to me. Don't talk. Don't put your belief in church. Put your belief in me. And I'm finally learning how to do that. The whole big difference between faith and religion. Yeah. Yeah. My faith was based on religion, not based on God. And I'm learning now that how to base my faith on God and not people in religion. And I think one of the one of the things that frequently is the biggest stumbling block for those of us who start having questions or challenges in our lives where what we're experiencing is not aligning with what we were told would be the blessings of God if we followed mm-hmm. all of these rules and regulations and did all the things. The biggest stumbling block are people claiming to speak for God and mm-hmm. putting themselves in that role that God obviously kept telling people all through the Bible that's not your place, uh, you know, except for specific prophets where God spoke specifically to people and said, go give this message to so-and-so. Um, but people who are either placed themselves in that role or who are placed by the congregation in that role, humans are always going to fail us at some point in our lives. And if we think of them as the, the, the personification of God on earth, Um, And when they fail us, where does that put our trust in God? Mm -hmm. Amen. I want y'all to to hold that thought because I'm going to ask you some of those specific questions a couple of weeks from now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh boy. (laughs) So I'm going to end this, this we could go on for hours, um, but we're like, Mm half an hour over already i'm afraid that my computer won't hold the file so (laughs) i'm gonna i'm gonna stop here i love you very much um pray about wisdom this week and we'll see yeah yeah Yeah. thank you bye Bye. Bye. goodbye everybody